Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 181 of the Chills of Will podcast. What a pleasure today to be joined by Ramona Reeves. And here's a bit about Ramona. Ramona is a native of Mobile, Alabama. Her linked short story collection, It Falls Gently All Around and Other Stories, won the 2022 Drew Hines Literature Prize and was published by University of Pittsburgh Press last fall. She spent a decade in the northeastern U.S. where she wrote freelance articles, proofread for Men's Fashion Weekly, and performed production roles for Food and Wine, Travel and Leisure, and Esquire before moving into technical editing and writing. She eventually moved to Texas for several years before leaving to pursue her MFA in fiction. She has since returned and is nearing completion on a novel. Ramona has served as a board member for A Room of Her Own, with the, with the acronym A-R-O-H-O, moderated and appeared on panels at conferences, taught college-level writing courses, and served as an associate fiction editor for Callisto Gaia Press. Her stories and essays have appeared in the Southampton Review, Pembroke, Bayou Magazine, New South, Superstition Review, Texas Highways, and other publications. She's won the Nancy D. Hargrove Editor's Prize, been a resident at the Kimmel Harding Nelson Center for the Arts, and is a Community of Writers alum. And as we're speaking today, you're going to be, winning, you're going to be uh, receiving a prize tonight. Can you tell us about that? Sure. From the Texas Institute of Letters, uh, I the book is going to be receiving the uh, Sergio Troncoso Award for Best First Book of Fiction, which is an annual award uh, given for a, a debut book each year. Uh, and basically anybody can submit to the um, the awards who's, I think, lived in Texas for five years. Um, so, yeah. Nice. Well, I mean, an official welcome. It's great to be talking to you. Yeah, great to be talking to you. Thank you for having me on. A pleasure. Um, I always feel like, you know, I obviously I, I put in the bio, I've read the bio, but like just reading it out loud, I think it says a lot about, you know, when you read your work out loud, you hear different things, but this isn't my work, but just reading them like, okay, so you proofread for a men's fashion weekly. I did. Performed <laughs> production roles for food and wine. I mean, I mean, all kinds of really cool and varied careers and, and jobs and gigs. What are we talking like GQ? Like what? I mean, you don't you have to say um, you don't want to or whatever, but so most people have heard of like uh like Women's Wear Daily. Okay. So it's the same company back in the day. Uh that it this was like around 89, 90, I guess. Uh mm. that that had a men's um trade magazine called DNR. Uh, uh-huh. it was weekly. They also had daily men's record, but it was all men's fashion. Uh-huh. Uh yeah, so I I was I was basically sort of the editorial uh peon, for, you know, so I did whatever. <laughs> it was it was like duties as assigned. Um, I gotcha. So uh-huh. some proofreading, uh some you know, even proofreading once they, you know, put it together in the art department. Um and occasionally they would send me on assignment and I would get to write these little blurbs, but oh, it was cool. always 
Yeah. But you know, you'd meet, you'd meet important people. Like one time I remember they sent me to meet um, the, the, the current Miss America at the time. And I couldn't ask her anything cool. I had to say, Uh yeah. Like, do you prefer your men in pleated pants or like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it was kind of, but you know, I guess, I guess I gained some skills there. So. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Oh my gosh. Kind of like, uh, Wow. Yeah. Like describing her as like an extension of the man almost, huh? Yeah, it was, it was, yeah. So it, you know, it was all, it was, and if I think uh, one time they had me call this columnist, uh, Art Buckwald. And once again, I had to ask him about the kind of suits he wore and why he wore those kinds of suits and, mm. you know, if he liked patterns or preferred solids. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, <laughs> <laughs> So perhaps not a return to that um, profession anytime soon. Probably not. Although, you know, I think there is something to be said for, you know, I guess on a deeper level, what people wear and why they wear and what they feel comfortable in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I'd love to know what, um, you know, what you were reading growing up. You have a, you know, varied history, successful history just in writing. And I'd love to know about, you know, growing up with the written word, was it something that was around your house all, all over the place? Were you a, a big reader and writer from the from the beginning? And how did that work? My grandmother uh, lived with us uh, several, well, my grandmother and my great-grandmother both lived with my mom and I. My mom was divorced very young. Uh, and my grandmother was an elementary school teacher. All right. So there were all, she loved books. There were always books around because of her. Um, and I, th- I think pretty early on, she introduced me to, of course, all the fairy tales and Aesop's fables. Mm. Um, and she also bought me all these kids books that were h- historical in nature, like, you know, about okay. each of the presidents. So they were all about, you know, men. But um, but still, I had all these history books. And um, I think Babar was another thing that I really liked. And then um, lots of Bible stories. And books about Bible stories, because um, I grew up Southern Baptist. So um, I would say I would say very early on that. And then maybe later on, um, somebody introduced me, of course, because of my name to Beverly Cleary. Mm-hmm. Who I loved because right. it was, yeah, I was kids like not always behaving the way they should. <laughs> <laughs> as they seem to in many other books. So I, uh, so I read a lot of those as well. Nice. Where, did you... In those times, I mean, were you, were you, was the Bible presented to you as, as allegory, as, you know, literal or somewhere in between, like, you know, the pageantry of the stories? Like, did you see it in, in a strictly religious sense or did you see it in a literary sense also? Uh, growing up, it was presented, I would say, as literal. Um, so, you know, the stories of somebody, say, like Jonah, you know, uh, it was considered that yes, this was a person who was swallowed by a fish and traveled and, you know, um, and then was spat up by the fish so that he could be a prophet. I mean, Uh you know, it was was a very literal reading of that, but having said that, you know, um, and, and growing up with that, I love the stories. I mean, the stories are for me now, even as an adult, they're amazing. You know? Oh yeah. Yeah. Page, page turner right i mean that's yeah yeah definitely I, I appreciate that i mean as far as like ideas of like representation of the south i mean do you did you consider yourself from the south or do you consider yourself from mobile you know what i mean like did you feel like a 
a greater sense of like the South with a capital S? Was it, oh, I'm just from a, you know, I'm from a state that happens to be there. Were you necessarily like um, reading Southern writers or is that something that didn't necessarily cross your mind? Uh, I, I definitely had first the sense of Mobile. I mean, you know, people there are very proud of the fact that the city is very old, although, although even if you go back before the European founding in 1700, I mean, you've got, you know, uh, several indigenous tribes that were there for thousands of years. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of history there mm -hmm. and I definitely felt that growing up. Um, but, uh, but then there was also this sense of, you know, being from being from the South. And I remember being in high school and there were all these bumper stickers that, you know, um, something about being born. You know, it's 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 lucky you were, you, you know, you were born American, but, you know, God made sure you were from the South kind oh, of thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was that sort of um, sense that it was like, you know, somehow important at, at that time to like be from there or something uh-huh i wonder if um if Faye would have sold that bumper sticker at the truck stop you know hmm. it's it's hard to say i mean <laughs> i don't know Faye Faye has such a i mean to me Faye is Faye is Faye is very much of that place in a lot of ways and yet she also sees people from other places i mean she really sees mm. them right, so i don't right, know right i don't know yeah I think she was uh, she was about the bottom line in some ways, and it wasn't this, it wasn't necessarily that like a blasphemous thing or or offensive. You know, obviously there are things that come maybe come with it, but yeah, who knows? You know better yeah. than I. You wrote so we'll talk about Faye and some of the other great <laughs> characters in a bit. If you're listening, Faye is not a real person, but she is painted so well by Ramona that it's like she is. Um, you know, I'm thinking of like my fairly limited knowledge. I'm thinking of like the Flannery O'Connors and. And Faulkner and one of these one of these years I'll go back and try to read The Sound and the Fury and try to understand it. But I wonder about Flannery O'Connor as I know I know she's known as like a Catholic writer, but I wonder if um if you were ever if she was how much she was pushed that sounds like a bad way, but how much she was um promoted in the reading you did or in the schools where you went as like a Southern writer or religious writer or just a really good writer in general. Was she somebody that influenced you or maybe not necessarily? I well, she, she definitely influenced me, but I would say that um, I did not encounter Flannery O'Connor till I was in New York in my twenties. Huh. Uh, and uh, it was a friend of mine who knew I was starting to try and write some short stories, and said, "You should read this person." Um, and that's actually when I first read Eudora Welty too. Uh, okay. And um, I, in fact, when I, I was reading, though, I was reading A Good Man is Hard to Find. I was reading that book of short stories, and I was reading the the story, the title story, and I actually missed my stop on the subway. Uh, and yeah, um, because I and I remember thinking, oh, my God, like this, you can do these things in a short story. You can mm. like somebody can die and this crazy story can happen and all of these th all of these turns of events can happen. Um, so that that definitely uh that definitely was an influence since then i mean there are you know a lot of other people that have uh that have really influenced me from the from the south for sure um yeah, yeah i'd love to talk about maybe more current they don't just have to be southern writers but you know as we come into more current times more contemporary times well even back to like you know some of the turning points maybe for you and maybe in college or after where you're like i can i want to do this i can do this for a living who were some of the really pivotal writers or pivotal texts that really put you on that path 
the earliest probably was uh, To Kill a Mockingbird and, you know, Harper Lee. Um, I mean, be, you know, of course she's from Alabama. So, and, yes, and, yes, and yes. there. And, um, so, so she was definitely somebody that I was aware of. Um, and then probably um, after, after Flannery O'Connor and Eudora Welty and some of those folks, um, I became familiar with Lee Smith. And I read yeah. Fair Intentional Ladies, which was, uh, a, you know, I love that book still. Um, and then I found uh, Mary Ward Brown, who's a, a short story writer from Alabama, um, and ZZ Packer. ZZ Packer oh, was okay. a big influence. Um, brownies is just all the stories in Drinking Coffee Elsewhere are great, but mm-hmm. I, I just love that story. Um, and then more recently, you know, Jasmine Ward. Mm-hmm. Um, uh tim gautreau they're they're you know yeah there are many <laughs> say harper leah makes me I, I kind of forget that he's a southern writer because i think he's kind of identified with like the new york literary scene but you know truman capote i think of i think of a christmas memory that story for me is one of the most one of the most uh standout that i've read in a very emotional way i don't know if you know that story yeah i, I think zz packer might have been the first writer recommended or mentioned on this podcast like my first guest my my former great my great professor my former professor um, Claudia McIsaac and I remember she mentioned Easy Packer I think that might have been the first first one so pretty cool oh wow that's awesome <laughs> yeah yeah definitely so you as a writer when did it, when did it become like okay I can do this I'm I'm getting praise I'm I love how it feels or you know someone's really delving into my work and giving you know feedback as if I'm the real thing how, how did that work for you. Uh, you know, it's been a really long journey. I, 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 like I mentioned, I started writing, uh, short stories in New York, uh, was trying to write them and life intervened. And, uh, and I was working a job that was very demanding at one point, didn't write, um, eventually moved to Austin, started trying to write again. Um, and I think that's where really, uh, when I came to Austin, that's where things really started to happen a little more. Um, I actually submitted a, a short story to uh, the Austin Chronicle short story contest. And uh, it was the first thing I had written or done in probably a decade. And, uh, and they called and said, Oh, you're a finalist. And I, I couldn't believe it. And I, I, I uh, <laughs> the funny thing about it is, is it was right at the very end when they were still having you mail something in. Uh-huh. Uh, and I had left the last page of the story, which was the last two sentences of the story. It, it somehow didn't make it into the envelope. Uh, uh, <laughs> I thought, well, I guess that ending is better. I don't know. Oh, but, wow. Um, but that that gave me some encouragement. And I thought, well, you know, um, maybe, maybe you know, I, I could do this. Maybe I, I can pursue this. So I started to really um, pursue um, the writing after that. And, uh, and then I think it was maybe a few years later that I met um, Antonia Nelson, right. um, I call Tony, uh, at a writer's retreat. Um, and, you know, long story short is she wrote me a recommendation to go, go to an MFA program, which I never thought at that point would happen. I thought I've been out of school, you know, 17, 20 years now. I don't remember what it was, but it was a long time. And I thought nobody's gonna, you know, do that, but she did. And, um, so that was, that was major. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we were talking before we were recording. For those listening, check out Antonia Nelson's In the Land of Men. For me in particular, the, the title story is unforgettable. 
And tell me the name of the other collection you were mentioning. Female Trouble. Female Trouble. Definitely. Yeah, she's she's incredible. Then Robert Boswell as well, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's great. And so cool that you had that that connection. I would love to, you know, get into into the most recent one, which is it falls gently all around, which is the one that's, you know, you're getting your award for tonight and won the Drew Hines Prize. And I'm just a huge fan of thematically linked short stories, of just short stories in general. I mean, we've talked about a few already, just, you know, individual short stories and collections with Flannery O'Connor and, and Capote and such. I'd love to know about some seeds for this book. Like the the first story of the book is, you know, it's called, uh, I think it's, it's Last Call, right? It's, it says 2005. Yeah. And these are obviously the years in which the the fictional, um, you know, stories took place. But I just wonder, like, how much of this book kind of traces your own, like, I mean, were you, did you have ideas for this in 2005? Did you just start writing it three years ago? Like, um, I'd love to know some seeds for this story collection. Uh, I started writing, uh, I started writing that story in 2009. Um, I was actually taking a class with Robert Boswell and he had uh, he was teaching a class on the interconnected short story form. And so he had us write several stories um, during that class. And uh, we read Olive Kitteridge. We read uh, by Elizabeth Strout. We read Ms. Hempel's Chronicles by uh, Sarah Shunlin Bynum. We read Marion O'Neill by Justin Cronin. And, 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 you know, then some of the like, uh, ones you would think of like Dubliners and okay. uh, um, Winesburg, Ohio uh, by Sherwood Anderson. Um, and so that's, that's really, you know, he gave us these very sort of prescriptive exercises initially, which I sort of railed against and was like, no, you know, but um, Babby emerged from those exercises and Donnie emerged. So those two characters, and I guess, like I said, I wrote four stories um, and I wrote this first one, which changed tremendously in revision. Okay. Um, but I, I guess another thing that was said in that class by someone is that um, I had loved Jane Austen way back when, and somebody said, oh, you couldn't write Jane Austen books now about, you know, class and manners and all that. You just, that, nobody could do that. And I thought, okay. You haven't been to Mobile or maybe oh, wow. some parts of the South or, <laughs> uh. but you know, classes everywhere. I mean, classes. Sure. Yeah. Um, so that's really where, that's really, really where the whole thing started. Oh, very interesting. Okay. Dubliners is the one that has the dead in it. Is that right? Yes. That's yeah. kind of chilling in a positive way. You think about like, you know, that classic, of course, right? Oh yeah. It's, it, it, it's amazing. Amazing story i guess some people consider it i guess it's approaching novella but you know it's, it's right yeah but that, that last that last paragraph and the last sentence on it uh i had a great 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 ap english teacher who i mean he gave us we read like portrait of artists as a young man <laughs> we read um you know the sound and the fury is like high school seniors like, oh my gosh but you know i love the idea of keeping the bar high but those were not easy reads right no no, no. Not, at all. And... not at all and I, in fact, I, I, I'll just say like some of the stuff I read in high school, mm -hmm. did not, I loved writing, but it did not encourage me to like, sure 
to, you know, I wrote poetry for a long time just because they had us read things like the Red Badge of Courage and Expectations, The Sound of the Fury. And I thought, if this is what prose writing is, I I don't know. Like, part of it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. Well, I I wonder about like working with, with space is not the worst, but working with time, like, you know, which because it's not a straightforward, you know, book or, you know, with, with chapters or not even, you know, just straightforward novel, it's got, you know, different stories and just about how you, how you kind of fill in the gaps, you know what I mean? So like, just theoretically, if a story takes place in 2005 and then the next one that involves these characters is 2008, like, what do you kind of think about or do with like that time in between? You kind of, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do. Um, yeah, one of the one of the hardest things about um, putting this together was well, the first thing was figuring out after I wrote the initial stories and came and you know finished my MFA and came back to this several years later and decided I wanted to pursue it is uh, is figuring out which stories I was going to write and why you know which which other stories were the most important to tell in terms of like the you know theme of of class as as one of the themes. Um, and then also just just arranging them once they were all written, figuring out what order they should yeah. go in and why. And um, one thing I was really aiming for was um, to, I wanted the past to always be present in these characters' lives, almost like they're living in the present, but the past is, it, it has a f- pretty fierce hold on them. Hmm. Um, so that it's almost, so that it's almost really always there with them. Um, that was one thing. Uh, and I think that hopefully makes the stories fuller too, but mm-hmm. I started to think of those spaces when I was arranging them in between the stories um, as places where other stories were happening that weren't in the book. Mm. And I, I, I wanted to arrange the stories so that, I mean, a reader would almost feel, okay, I, I kind of know this story and this story is happening, you know, in between these stories. And I, for each reader that, that, hopefully that may be different. That probably is different. Um, but that's how, that's how I was thinking about it. I appreciate that. Yeah. Faulkner said what the, the past is never dead. It's in fact, it's not even past something to that effect. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that one always rings true. The, the first story is called last call. So it's pronounced Babby. Yeah. Babby. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Like there's a great quote, quote, one person's calling was another's penance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's when you know she's working kind of like a, she's working at the hospital she's not like a medical person necessarily but she doesn't love it but it's something and you know there are people who are there as a calling and she's like kind of like oh, maybe this is a penance does, yeah does she feel like she needs a penance she so the whole the, the that story is that she sees a person come in named, named Skipper and you know on, on a on a gurney pretty much or on a stretcher and she sees him and it reminds her she of work she'd done at a motel she basically done sex work right right wasn't formal or anything like that i guess when she's working at this motel um there's a lot about you know about in this book just about aging i mean obviously there are incredibly unfair rules or or expectations of women you know women are considered older at a younger age than men right mm-hmm. but she really writes real that she really uh, speaks interestingly about the idea of women having fewer choices women you know this idea oh men have women have choices but um she doesn't necessarily see that as the greatest thing so rowan is he's kind of a sloppy guy he's a, a benefactor for her in some ways 
I wonder if you can maybe talk about their their history a bit, at least, you know, at this point of the book, you know, if he's doing this out of altruistic, um, you know, means or if it's more utilitarian. And then just about Babby and her kind of past and and what she's reckoning with. It's a lot. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that is a lot. And I, I do think that she, um, in some ways, I mean, she grew up Catholic. I do think she does have a sense of like doing penance, penance for, you know, the things that she's done and trying to leave this past behind at this hotel. Um, I mean, a part of what drives her as a character, I think is, 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 you know, a deep seated shame in certain ways. Although she's, although she doesn't, or I hope she doesn't come across as a victim either. No, Um, I don't think she sees herself that way. Um, But I think that she wishes that she could somehow be entirely seen Mm -hmm. which is not always something that happens for her um so in some ways i think i I mean and i think rowan does see her um mostly and i think that that's one thing that ties her to him uh Mm -hmm. i think that he still is tied to her in some ways because uh at least for me i felt it was um that he can buy pretty much anything he wants Mm -hmm. and he cannot buy her. Mm -hmm. She's, she's still, uh, despite everything that she's been through and that's happened to her, she's, she, she has agency. Mm -hmm. And so that was my, my sense there is the tension between them that, uh, she still is somebody who's going to maybe you know allow him to help her and wants him to help her but she's also going to do what she wants to do <laughs> yeah yeah I'm about it there's a i mean there's some there's a great scene in the in the bathroom you know where she she goes to hide out and this a lot of things happen in the in the stall nothing you know nothing uh profane or anything like that but just very interesting second story is donnie he said you said donnie and babby were were some of your first characters right yeah. And, you know, Donnie's talking about, I mean, I mean, we all, they all have their traumas, right? I mean, when, you know, Babby has, you talked about class. I mean, Babby has never had a lot of money. That's, you know, why she, that pushed her into, into doing the, the sex work and stuff like that. And, you know, so, excuse me. So Donnie's talking about his father's funeral and how stunned he was and is. He's kind of that never do well. At least, you know, he's down on his luck. And yeah. he's definitely down on his luck. And so he takes this trip. He's, a, he's a, like a long haul trucker and he's on his way to California and he runs into a psychic. Um, She doesn't quite, uh, I don't know. There's the idea that he thinks, I think he's maybe trying to convince himself, right? But he's like, oh, well, maybe she kind of did me a favor. Yeah. I, and, and maybe she did. I mean, she, you know, she clearly has some, you know, maybe she has some financial needs i don't know uh and he is there and she does with what she says at least recognize that you know he needs help um so it's i think that i think that's a gray area you know Mm. about um in my mind it was as gray as to whether she actually steals from him or gives him what he needs um or both or both both or both (laughs) you know People, I, it's funny. I've, I've been to some book clubs and and talked, and people are always surprised when I start talking about, yeah, that I didn't, I didn't know he was going to stop at the psychic. I didn't know he was going to, you know, find the book about yoga, which we haven't talked about yet. But, mm-hmm. um, because I don't, in writing the drafts of the stories, I don't always know what's going to happen until it happens. You know, 
Um, I just love, I just love hearing that. I love when writers are talking about like, just almost like not having a sense of agency, just like the story just took it from there. Right. The characters spoke for themselves. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> it's strange and wonderful, but you uh -huh. know, it's great. <laughs> I, I want more of that. And I want more of that. You know, how can I get more of that as a writer? I'm always feel like I'm, I'm didactic and telling them what to do. Uh, but it works, you know, some, some writers work that way though. And it works sure. really. Yeah. It works great. So. Sure. But yeah, like you talk about, so there's like, there's this yoga book and I mean, throughout the whole rest of the book, your collection, he, you know, yoga becomes one of his things and it's a, it's a coping mechanism. It's a, it's a rebirth for him. It's a do over. Right. He he has some really tough times. He gets fired from that job. You know, alcohol is, is totally his undoing. And I know he feels like in some ways, like he's the the odd man out in his family, right? His brother's successful, at least ostensibly, you know, financially. He and his mom haven't been talking, right? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, for him, he sees, I mean, as, as the collection goes on, yoga is his his do-over. There's that incredible scene at the towards the end with the in the church you know, with the yoga stance. So it definitely becomes like a motif throughout. Do you have a history with yoga? I haven't been doing yoga the last few years, but um, during the writing of the draft of the book, I, I, I did yoga. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, for me, it was more about uh, just trying to do something healthy. And I did learn some, some really great breathing exercises um, but I started to notice people who were really into yoga uh -huh. you know, went to yoga retreats and went to, you know, and then would teach yoga and all yeah. that. It was almost um, and not in a bad way, but almost like a religion in a certain way. Sure. And um, I think that's where I started to I started to think, oh, you know, this this could be this could be somebody's path. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, whatever works. Right. Yes. So, um, so I think that that's where. I started to think with Donnie when that, when that, when he found that book, I thought, Oh, this, this could be, you know, this could be his way, you know? Right. right. You talked a lot about the history of mobile and, you know, I mean, obviously every place has history, but just this idea of, of class and, um, you know, mobile and, and the South have such a, a place in, in history protests and things about the Confederacy and, and, you know, quote Southern pride and all of that along with, you know, with, with some of the horrible things that have happened there in other parts of the country. But he's, he's always kind of patting himself on the back, family lineage. He, he says, oh, you know, 200 plus years. And he doesn't say in these words, but he kind of pats himself on the back for being progressive, I think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, things like the family and the history they have, and they have to keep up, you know, kind of like, almost like, a, I guess, waspy. I, I kind of picture like waspy, like Northeastern. You know, like yeah. our, I think his mom had said, our kind of people don't wallow in emotion, right? Yeah. Very yeah. much about keeping up, keeping your chin up and, you know, emotionless and that kind of thing right there. Well, yeah, so I'd love for you to talk about like, um, yeah, just that idea of like family lineage and how much Rowan buys into it, how much, like what it means, you know, what it means to be like, a, I don't even know how you pronounce the word. I can see it in my head with the S-C-I-O-N. Oh, uh, right? like, a, yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. I just, I just think of ideas of like, you know, he's like a, like a prince and not, I don't, I don't get the impression that they're like, you know, incredibly, incredibly rich, but just this idea of like what it means for you, maybe specific to Mobile, maybe more just generally what it means to kind of be like a member of like a historic family. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you know, growing up, uh, there were definitely families and i'm sure you know probably still are but but 
more growing up, uh, uh, if it, it was small enough that if you said certain people's names, everybody was like, oh yeah, the so-and-sos and the so-and-sos. Mm-hmm. And, and all those people were, you knew part of what everyone referred to as old money. Like mm-hmm. they were in, which old money, a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it predating the civil war. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's definitely from that class and uh those people you know also mobile i don't know if you know this but mobile actually they get very up in arms if somebody says that new orleans had the first mardi gras uh, they'll uh... tell you <laughs> i went on it for research for the book i actually went to a carnival museum in uh mobile and the dawson actually actually said yes and we were the first mardi gras that other place over in louisiana was still swamp <laughs> um uh, <laughs> at our first, yeah <laughs> so they get very up in arms but um but so the people who are in that class also are in the oldest uh, mystic societies um mm. and uh, so so some date you know back to uh the civil war interrupted actually mardi gras mobile and um so the the mystic societies pretty much date to some of them date right before the civil war and some of them came into existence right after mm. but um, all of those oldest families are in those. And I, I want to think that the very oldest one uh, that you have to even be a legacy, meaning somebody in your family has to have been a member for you to even be considered. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, honestly, there's some, there's some problems there too, because uh, some of those societies, unlike new Orleans are all white. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's problematic for me. Um, and in New Orleans, I think in the nineties, uh, actually said you can't base membership on, you know, race or religion or anything else uh, that people might, might want to base it on, but some of those still exist in Mobile. Um, you know, that's where Rowan comes from. He comes from that, mm-hmm. that place with this history of all these generations of people that have come before and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's what I was really writing about yeah. there. Well, yeah, I mean, it seems like the elephant in the room, if you're talking about like um, the legacy is that if, if they're all money, you know, how much of that came from from slavery, from slavery, right? Exactly, exactly. And and um, there's like there's a great film that just came out last year. There's a filmmaker named um, Margaret Luce Brown who came. Uh, she had a film called uh, Descendant, which was picked up by the Obama's production company. Mm. And it's on Netflix. Um, and it's actually a. Uh, the very last slave ship that came into the United States uh, came in That's through. Right. And, right. Yeah. So it's, it's an amazing documentary and, and gets into some of these things. And, uh, hmm. and that's what I was really trying to go with, uh, with Rowan. Hmm. So the, you know, we talk about Rowan and um, there are, you know, he, he does want to have a kid um, and that, you know, he still has those connections to Babby from when they were, they were married or they they were married. Right. They were married. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, she, they're unfortunate. There is a lot of loss. There are, you know, multiple miscarriages in the book. And just about that, that numbness, that sadness, all of the above that comes with that and how that, you know, informs later, later relationships and, and such, um, you know, but that's a big part of the book throughout is, is wanting to have a kid. The title story goes all the, goes back to 1984. Right? Yeah. Babby and her ideas of the world as a, as a quote, careless place because of, 
the miscarriage, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the strain on the marriage that, that, that took place, what might've been, you know, these are all kind of things that run throughout this book. Um, you know, there's that, there's the mothers in the hospital room, which I thought was such a well-drawn scene. Yeah. I was, I just, I don't really know exactly even what how, to say how or why, but I just thought that was such a, a moving scene, a really interesting scene. And just like, just like a, a meeting of the minds, a meeting of the moms, a meeting of the generations, right? So I wonder yeah. about the, I guess, I guess even the title of the collection, the title of that story, and just about loss and kind of, you know, what you were going with, what you're going for with that story. Yeah, I really, with that story, I, I mean, I, I sort of, I, I consider that, I guess, really the the origin story for the book in, uh, in a way, if it doesn't happen a lot of the other stories don't happen. Sure. Sure. Um, and I, I was really trying to, again, um, really draw on those themes of class, Babby mm-hmm. and Rowan who are from completely different places and, yeah. um, you know, how that all, um, how that all breaks down at the point when they're married and they have these very different parents at the wedding and, and how that looks, you know, even after the miscarriage and the, Mm -hmm. in the, in the hospital room and, uh, and, and, and sort of what that, how that uh, pushes a wedge between them. And, you know, for, for, for Rowan, I mean, I don't want to give much away, but uh, you know, he's, he's sort of, Oh, we'll just pick up and we'll, you know, we'll buy mm. something and get more education, do this thing or that mm. thing. We'll, we'll move on. And for Abby, how it, it seems like a sign, you know? Right. So really that's what I was up to with that, um, with that story. Yeah. I, th- I think kind of you saying that and me kind of thinking more about, it, I think what one of the things that struck me about that hospital scene was just like that it was in some ways it was between the two, it was between Rowan and Babby in some ways it was between Babby and herself. You know what I mean? There's, there's no yeah. way that I could, I could understand as a man, you know, what, or Rowan could, what she went through. And then the family just getting involved too. Right. I mean, they're going to, that was the future grandchild, et cetera, but it's like, they, that's not their thing either, but it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. There's so much there. And then just also the relationship dynamics between them. I mean, uh, Hopefully, when you see them in other scenes many years later, you know, all of that's still sort of reverberating, you know? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yes. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that it was, I think I think it's the fourth story of the collection. And it's so, and I can't see it being placed anywhere else, but it's like, it's, I love the, in media rest, I guess it is, whatever, you know, you know, just, mm-hmm. but it's the idea of the flashbacks and flash forwards and you really, really position them so well. Um, but yeah, just yeah. ideas of like decorum and like, you know, even after that, that tragedy, you know, it's just the way, you know, especially Rowan's mom about the way, you know, we're supposed to act and such. Um, yeah. There's a great, great, great line. There's a, um, there's a same sex couple. It's Sammy Joe. Am I saying, is that the Sammy right name? Joe, yeah. Uh-huh. Sammy Joe and Cor- Corinne. Corinne. Uh-huh. The second time I think on the podcast, if I was, if I want to say Corinne, but I know it's Corinne. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, there was such a great line about, you know, again, about class where Sammy Joe's people were the ones who submerged and, yeah. Corin- and Corinne's were the ones who did everything to avoid getting wet. Yeah. Like in a, like in a baptismal, like scene, um, you know, way. I think that was, that was so, that was so telling, man, it's such a great turn of phrase there, turns of phrase. So, you know, some ideas of, it's not exactly the same thing, but like class and high society, but just like decorum in general, Donnie in some of the most 
and there's once you know the scenes where he's very helpful and he's very generous but there's scenes that are almost tragic and he laughs donnie laughs at the most inappropriate times yeah i wonder kind of where that came from like did you have like a real life experience with that or, or why you kind of inserted that um, well, I'm going to be giving some stuff away about myself now, but yeah, that's actually, that's actually a weird thing I have. And that some people have, which is when things just become really overwhelming. Sometimes uh-huh. I will, I, I have a nervous laugh. And when I, I was younger, people do. know that people would be like, it's not funny. And I'm like uh-huh. I'm laughing. Cause it's funny. It, I'm, I'm like, you know, right. completely dumbfounded and don't know what to do or say. Um, yeah. And I, I, I felt for him that'd be another, um, you know, that would be another thing that would help to explain some of his insecurities. Because certainly, aside from his this relationship with his brother and his mother, mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, that would be another thing that that people would definitely call call him on, like mm-hmm. if he's laughing in the wrong places. Yeah, um, you know, right. Yeah, no, I, I think I don't think you're alone with that. I would think of myself. I think a lot of other people. I work with high school students, you know, a lot of times it's, it's a laugh rather than like uh, a groan, you know what I mean? Or they're upset or they're anxious. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so as I stand, you know, I have my, my little microphone here as I sit with this little microphone in front of me, it's like when I was seven years old, my grandpa, who's my absolute hero, he, it was a 70th birthday party and there was like a microphone and people were saying, you know, like, I love Joe because blah, blah, blah. And I couldn't talk. I could not talk. I was so in shock, so like nervous, scared. And so my dad just held the mic up for a while. And finally I was just like, I love you, grandpa. After I laughed for like two minutes, but I was not, nothing was funny. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I was not happy at that time. Yeah. Laughing, laughing, laughing. (laughs) Exactly. I I totally know what you mean. And, um, and, and honestly, I just, you know, I wanted to give him a, sometimes I think it's just interesting too, if a character has like a, uh, a flaw like that just to mm-hmm. see what you know what their experience with it is and how it how it affects the story mm-hmm. um yeah mm-hmm. yeah just you know decorum and di- the different ways in which people show show their spirituality show their religion um mm-hmm. you know i won't say much about rob other than rob seems to be a legitimately like good religious person um, he's not just about appearances, right? He he has the spirituality seemingly to go with the religion, you know. He does pretty well financially, and maybe that's a, a whole different topic. But but you know, and then of course we talked about with with Donnie and his yoga as his as his religion or his spirituality, and you know, there's the there's that great scene in the uh, AME church towards the end, and it's just a different different than the. You know, even Babby growing up with with her Catholic, she talked about going to 30 minute masses and wearing, you know, like cut off jeans or something like that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. But just, you know, there's so much about the old and the new. We've we've talked about um, Corinne's mom saying it's good to remember who we are. Yeah. As a double or triple or quadruple meaning, right? I, I forget another quote was like, a new world meant the old one wasn't an option. Right. And then, you know, I would love to know, um, you know, and then of course race. Um there's the scene with the was it a knife the old like the thing that yeah. the thing that went up that went missing right yeah and ideas of you know who's being accused and who's not um i wonder like how much you feel that um race was like ostensibly a theme or that it's something you know that you sought out to to portray 
or race, you know, I would say race, how about racism Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or just something more that you, that is absolutely baked in and can't, you know, it comes in naturally with a lot of the things that you write about. I think some of it was baked in only because I was working with class and in, in the United States, I kind of, and not just in the South, I, I, I think it's difficult to write about class without writing about race and religion, mm -hmm. a host of, you know, a bunch of other things, but definitely mm -hmm. those, uh, I think those, those all come into play. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, yeah, I, I, I can't see that. I, I can't see writing about class and not bringing in race, but, mm -hmm. um, but also it, it, it just feels like so much a part of the history. Like I was mentioning earlier, that film and, um, you know, other, other things I know, like, uh, about growing up there and, uh, it, for me, it would have, if I hadn't written about it in the book to mm -hmm. some extent, it would have felt inauthentic. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, although, yeah, I, although I certainly, like I said, don't think race is only a problem in the South, of, but of course not, of course but not. slavery was in the South. I mean, that's, sure. you know, sure. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's such a light touch and, and, you know, it's not didactic, but it's, you know, like the like the the waiters at the country club and just kind of like, um, you know, the uh, would have been, I guess, Rowan's mother and kind of just, you know, pointing and come here and do this and OK. And, you know, and they, you know, the the black, um, you know, waiter would would really kind of just like go off, you know, into the into the distance till he was needed again, you know, and just yeah. um, ideas of expectation and class and race and. Like you said, how can you not? The idea would be inauthentic if you didn't include. Um, yeah, ideas, right? I, I absolutely. I can think we'll kind of end with this. Just ideas of like new life and recovery. I mean, Donnie's literally in recovery with Alcoholics Anonymous, right? He had a lot of um, problems with alcohol, to say the least. You know, ideas of rebirth and growth. There's, there's that. I won't say a lot about the the last story in the scene, but the the baptismal scene is is really. Um, really well done and really interesting and really moving ideas of, you know, of baptism, obviously, which is a, a new start, a new birth um, mm -hmm. earlier, kind of maybe towards the middle of the book, there's that haircut for Donnie, you know, like he had the long hair that he'd grown out ever since he yeah. had his, his problems. Right. And ideas of, you know, of, of death um, with, I won't give away the one, you know, accident of sorts, but just like, you know, the, the miscarriages, Faye, who we talked about a little bit, she's the one who runs the the truck stop where Donnie does a lot of his work. Yeah. And I really, I really liked how I really liked her as a character. I was really interested in her. And she really describes herself as widowed, not widowed, but single. Yeah. And I think I think a lot of that is her her just trying to convince herself that there's a difference or that, you know, that she's not as broken up as she is about about the death of her of her husband. Yeah. Um, and then obviously with, you know, with her having some sort of dementia, there's this idea of what she remembers, what she doesn't. And some of the scenes where she has like hallucinations or daydreams were really, really moving uh, um, for me. So I just wonder about like new life and rebirth and how much, um, again, you were aiming for that are themes and just kind of how you how you see those themes playing out in the book. Oh, I, you know, one of the, one of the themes is definitely connections and missed connections in the book. Mm. Uh, all of these characters are trying, I think, so they, they all want to connect so much. And 
one thing I wanted to do is, you know, there's, um, for me, there's, there's, there's been a lot of, and especially maybe lately, a lot of fiction that seems very dark and not that there's, there's a lot of darkness in this book. There is. Um, but I, uh, but I did, I did want to leave, um, leave room for hope. Mm -hmm. It, it, it maybe could even sound a little goofy talking about literary fiction, but, um, you know, the idea of love. I mean, I, I think there's, I think there's room for that in short stories now and there's room for, you know, those ideas. Um, and that, that really was, um, that really was on my mind too, is like how to, how to include that without, um, you know, taking it too far, but so the reader would, would get it, um, sure. you know, as, as you described it. So, um, and there are a lot of writers doing that now. I mean, I think of Disha Filial. I mean, I, her book, um, The Secret Lives of uh, Church Ladies was great. And she did some amazing things. I think she even had one ending that was a happy ending in that book, maybe. And I thought, what? What? I know, like, wow. Yeah. Like, so, yeah. Yes. Yes. No, she did. She did. I was, I was able to talk to her. Yeah. That's a, um, genre shifting like genre marking you know it's like before disha and after i mean that was such a great great collection right yeah uh, as is yours and it's just like i appreciate you you know you kind of enumerating or or explaining some of those ideas the is this is this a optim is this an optimistic book is this an optimistic collection of stories uh You know, in some ways it is. I mean, in, in that I tried to at least, even though I didn't let some of the characters off the hook, I think, um, I at least wanted to, well, resist resist stereotypes, but also bring empathy to each mm -hmm. one mm -hmm. uh, as, a, as just a human being. Mm -hmm. um, and in that way, I mean, you know, in that way, I think it is optimistic. And in that way, actually, the fact that, you know, fiction can create empathy in readers. I think all fiction is yes. optimistic in some ways. Oh, I like that. Yes. I like that. That's a really interesting way to look at it. Yeah. I mean, you know, even the characters who mess up, it's like, I can't, I can't, there's, there's not a, there's not a villain necessarily that's one of the main characters. Right. There's not, there's not an evil, horrible, horrific person. And that, like you said, that that wouldn't that'd be inauthentic, right? It wouldn't seem real to, to real life. There's definitely yeah. flawed flawed characters for sure. Yeah, uh, but a lot of empathy. Like I said, it's kind of like, wait a minute, like like, are you writing under a pen name? Like this couldn't have been your debut novel because it's like such an incredible book in general. But for it to be your first is like not debut novel, debut collection. But I'd love to know about the the lack of sophomore slump. What's going to be if you want to share any projects or anything you're working on? You instead in the bio that you're working on a novel. Yeah, and I and uh, I, I I just I just I have a reader. Somebody's gonna read for me, and I just sent it off to uh, her. Like, uh, right. to go. So I'm really excited and uh, hoping I'll you know maybe be trying to send it off this summer sometime, and may we'll see. We'll see what happens. Mm. Similar ish subject matter, or uh, some of the subject matter is uh is the same but uh the i'll just say the the main narrator is uh 83 years old okay uh, and it's in first person so uh Ooh, yeah nice. it's a road trip novel oh road trip novel yeah yes all right that's very cool like i said it's it's so cool uh, I, some people talk about like they talk about like it's a big deal like hey i read the acknowledge acknowledgements on every book i'm like i do too i thought everyone did 
Yeah. <laughs> it was so cool to see some, uh, some, right. It was so cool to see some familiar names. Uh, you know, Russ was a, was one of my first guests, um, Russ Bradbird and, you know, yeah, love Russ. Uh, oh man. He's so, and he's not just a writer. I mean, he's done stuff with basketball and, you know, the, he's a coach for you, master right? and yeah right yeah exactly yeah like yeah. scottish or irish? irish irish yeah yeah i mean you know not how many irish fillers do we know and yeah, he wrote about you know coaching uh in ireland and so very much a renaissance man um but it's so cool to read those names it's so cool to read about your you, you mentioned earlier your grandmother the elementary school teacher who really put you on the path to reading and writing so many people helped you out but i got to think that there are a lot of people i'm uh, gonna be reading this book and saying oh man like either a I, there's no way i can do this how she so you know melody's characters and and but b like i want to do this so thanks for a great collection congratulations on the awards hope you enjoy yourself tonight and you. really, really appreciate uh talking to you thanks so much for your time thank you so much this has been fun so much fun yeah pleasure it has been to speak today with Ramona Reeves. Continue good luck to her with her writing. And I'm so looking forward to continue to follow her career and her important work. You can now subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review. You can also ask for the podcast by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. Watch and subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills of Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills of Will podcast Peter Real. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look in an often ignored art form. Excited to tell you that this week I have my second byline. This is in the Chicago Review of Books. It's about Stephen Burroughs' Five Sorrowful Mysteries of Andy Africa, which is an incredible debut and my byline, my interview with Stephen, is published in the Chicago Review of Books. You can look it up online, find it on my social media. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental. The other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour. And both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 182 with Talia Lakshmi Koluri, the author of What We Fed to the Manticore, which is a finalist for the 2023 Carol Shields Prize for Fiction and long-listed for the 2023 Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction, as well as the 2023 Aspen Words Literary Prize and the 2023 Penn slash Robert W. Bingham Prize for Debut Short Story Collection. The episode with Talia airs on May 12th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Ramona Reeves, whose work, like it falls gently all around, gives you chills at will. Mm -hmm.